These conversations were recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of Binge Fest, a 24-hour non-stop celebration of pop culture, the internet and addictive storytelling. First up, we have our favourite moments from Gut Churn with Radiolab co-creator and host Jad Abumrad, followed by binge-worthy journalism with executive producer of Serial, Julie Snyder. So in the early days of Radiolab, I heard a story that for me became almost like a North Star. Uh, it's like it's a piece that I call upon constantly when I'm stuck. Uh, it's an old NPR piece, and it, and it starts this way. This is the host intro before the reporter starts the piece. In the world of science, there's supposed to be a reason for everything, a reason why the sky is blue, a reason why dogs chase bicycles. There is even somewhere a reason why socks disappear in the washing machine. However, there is no generally accepted reason why you and I stand on our own two feet. So that's the question that's going to motivate the story. Why do people stand on two feet rather than four? And there are all kinds of theories. I mean, some people think we stood up to grab fruit from the trees. Uh, other people think we stood up so that we could chase game long distances. And that's kind of the main theory. Um, you could do this story any number of ways. The classic way would be to take your microphone, go to the university where the person who has the theory works, stick it in their face, record them spouting the theory, then put it on the air. Okay? That would be the basic public radio way to do the story. Listen to how Scott Carrier begins the story. So this is this what you're about to hear is is the first thing that happens after the host stops talking and throws to the reporter. And there they go. What? There they go. You see him crossing over no. there? No. Over to the right. Off quite a ways away, in fact. Way out there. A couple of years ago, my brother and I went to Wyoming to run down an antelope. I only see three over there. Well, there were about eight down there. Yeah. yeah I think it was August, and our plan was to chase one animal until it overheated and collapsed. It just took off running. Okay. You want to follow it? Yeah. We had good reasons for what we were doing. One was that it seemed entirely possible. Another had to do with an argument concerning human evolution. It's a scientific argument, so it takes a few minutes to explain. Like, I remember hearing this, and in the first 30 seconds being like, wait, what? You're going to chase an antelope till it dies? That's how you're going to investigate this story? That is just not a normal reporterly situation. But as you'll hear, um, it's not a stunt. We choose two does and follow them. And they run over another little hill, and on the other side, all of a sudden, there are 20 of them running as a herd. Following this herd is like following a school of fish. They blend and flow and change positions. There are no individuals, but a mass that moves across the desert like a pool of mercury on a glass table. I mean, first of all, you want to talk about voice. Like, there's just something about the way that Scott writes and the way that he delivers his writing. It's just... It just lulls you into a trance, you know? Like, I, I often think of storytellers as, like, shaman in a way. Like, we're supposed to lull a group into a collective dream state. And there's just something about the way that he writes and speaks that just does that. In any case, um, here's what ends up happening. Scott ends up chasing that antelope, or antelope that looked like that antelope, for 12 years. Like, he literally chases antelope for 12 years. 
And, it, you know, as the piece progresses, it starts on this, uh, I, th I think in NPR, it sort of migrates to this American life and then back, I think. As he's chasing this antelope and as he's continually not catching it, um, the nature of his chase really starts to shift. I mean, it started, as you remember, as a scientific inquiry, but it becomes something way more personal about, like, how do you find authenticity in the world? I have no desire to participate in the market economy or the democratic process. I have no goals or ambitions other than to someday go back to the desert with my brother and try again to run down an antelope. I have a plan, and I'm trying to follow it, but it's hard. It's a hard plan to follow. I'm trying to get in shape, and I'm trying to live like a primitive man. Sometimes I feel like I'm not succeeding at either one. I've read a lot about primitive cultures, and I use that term primitive in the sense that it means original or primary. For maybe 99% of human history, a few million years, humans were hunters. They didn't get up and go to work each morning. That started with civilization, and civilization is nothing but a heartbeat of recent time, 10,000 years at the most, and to hell with that. I want to wake up naked and alone in the desert. I want to eat sand and drink piss and pass out screaming from sunburn and spider bites. I think this might be like my favorite radio story of all time. I mean, it's just beautiful radio, I, I, first of all. But I also feel like there's something really important going on here. Because like I, as a reporter, all of us, whatever we do, like we sort of go out ostensibly looking for answers to the questions we have. And I sometimes slip into the fallacy that like that's my job to, to find answers. I don't think that's my job. Obviously, it's more about the questions that I ask. But see, anyone can ask a question. Anyone can sort of ask a question in that way that you know you're not going to answer, you know? Like, anyone could do that. What Scott's doing here feels, in, to me, categorically different. Like, he is allowing the question to possess him, to fill all the cells in his body. I mean, the primary sound of the story is his feet hitting the dirt. So the question has become his body. Like, he, it, it is, he has been haunted by the question, in a way. Uh, like, Rilke, in his letters to a young poet, there's this moment somewhere in the middle uh, where he tells the young poet, Renz Kappas, he says, don't just ask the question, be the question. Be the question. And he repeats it over and over again. And, you know, when I'm stuck, I often think, am I doing that? Am I sort of doing what Scott's doing? Am I actually getting out of my seat and going out and being physically engaged and asking this? Am I putting all my nerve endings into this question? Am I pursuing this question beyond the point of reason? Because I actually feel like nothing ever gets interesting until it stops being reasonable. So. Chasing antelope. That is something I will say to myself very late at night when I'm stuck. We should be always looking for ways and looking for the details and the moments and the stories that reflect life the way that it really is. And not, not to mimic other stories because we think that's the way that they're supposed to be told. And not to reduce people to caricatures, not run away from ambiguity or contradiction, but instead to try and, and reflect the world as it really is, you know, in all of the funny and bizarre and sometimes really upsetting ways that it exists. And doing that, I think reporting stories this way 
that's with artistry. And, and it creates intimacy, but it also creates empathy. And I think that's what moves a story from being merely interesting to being something that's actually meaningful. I remember we were at about episode four or five when Ira came to me and said he had some thoughts about how to end the story. And I was like, wonderful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And Ira's really, he's really good at this stuff. And so I remember, like, I go into his office and I've got, like, my pen and my notebook and I sit down on the couch. And I remember his idea was, he said, um, I think it would be really great if you solved it. <laughs> In his defense, he says that's not what he meant. But anyway, I mean, you know, like, of course, we wanted to solve this case to figure out who exactly was lying and why. But as we got nearer and nearer to the end of our reporting and to the end of the show, it became clear to us that, like, that just wasn't going to happen. But it raised for me what I thought was a far more interesting question, which is, are we okay with the fact that the prosecution's story is full of holes? that the timeline and the cell phone records pretty much prove that the crime could not have happened the way that the state said it did. And someone spending his life in prison based on that story, are we okay with that? What if he didn't do it? And more interestingly still, what if he did do it? What if he did kill this girl? And yet still the state's case was deeply flawed. And then, the other thing that compelled me the entire time was a more personal question of judgment. How well can you know someone? How well can you tell what someone's capable of? And how much can you ever know someone else's mind? I just want to spend a minute talking about the relationship between the reporter and the subject, namely Sarah's relationship with Idnan. A huge component of doing a story like this, any story where you're spending a lot of time over time talking with somebody, it's psychological, emotional. And it's something that I don't think that reporters like to talk about all that much because it's messy and uncomfortable. But I think that's another reason that Serial felt different was because rather than, than hiding all of that messiness underneath a clean narrative, that confusion and that discomfort were at times part of the narrative. There, there's this pretty famous book called The Journalist and the Murderer. Maybe you guys have all read it. I, I read it recently, and when I did, I became very grateful that I hadn't read it before doing Serial. <laughs> Because the, here, is, this is the first sentence of the book. This is also a pretty famous quote. Quote, every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible, unquote. What is going on, according to Janet Malcolm, who wrote this book, is deception. Because the interviewee thinks that what is happening is a collaboration between himself and the reporter. But the reporter, Malcolm says, is not collaborating, has no intention of collaborating. The reporter is not writing the interviewee's story. The reporter is writing her own story. 
This book, The Journalist and the Murderer, it's, it's about the questionable tactics that a reporter used to get his story, basically the lies he told his subject to get what he wanted. And when I read it, I thought, well, that's not us. Sarah and I, we did not do that. We never lied to Adnan about what we were doing. Sarah never lied about what she thought. You know, but if I'm, if I'm honest with myself, which I avoid, if I can help it, but um, if I'm honest, there were, there were passages in Malcolm's book that, you know, produced in me an uncomfortable twinge of recognition. Because Sarah's relationship with Adnan, I don't know what to even totally call it, even it's their series of interactions. It was personal, this relationship, and it wasn't purely professional, but it wouldn't qualify as a friendship either. It pretends to be very straightforward, but it has fissures of mistrust, and it changes all the time. It's changing still. A, a couple of months ago, Sarah told me that Adnan called her and he'd just eaten a box of Krispy Kreme donuts, apparently a whole box, and I guess he sounded like a little crazy. And Sarah told me she had this lurking thought of like, is this manic weirdo, the real Adnan? Or is this just like the Krispy Kremes talking? And I think later it turned out it was mainly the Krispy Kremes because the donuts wore off and by the end of the hour he sounded more normal again. But like, that's what happens, you know? There's, there's a second communication hovering right above the one they're purportedly having and, and sometimes even a third one hovering above that. There are roughly 42 hours of phone calls on tape with Adnan. Sarah has asked him so many times in so many different ways whether he killed Heyman Lee. She tried this super subtle approach. Did you kill Hay Lee? No, absolutely not. Do you know who did? No, I have no idea. Did you have anything to do with it? I had absolutely nothing to do with it. She tried the bait and switch, asking him first if another guy he knows maybe was involved. Um, and she tried a totally cowardly method. Just listen to this one. Listen to how she throws our producer, Dana, under the bus, pretending that it's her idea that Adnan is lying. We hired this uh, producer to, to help do research and, and like put the stories together. She's really great. And she was saying, like, she's been reading everything and, and like logging all of the interviews that I do and stuff. And so she was like, I think, I think, I don't think Adnan did it, but she's like, I think he knows more than he's saying. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she's like, you have 60 seconds remaining. Can I call you back? Yeah, yeah, call me right back. Those 60 second warnings can really suck the drama right out of a moment. He did call right back. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Yeah. Hey. So, so, so yeah, yeah are you, I'm, so I'm going to ask you, are you, so, are you protecting yeah, anyone? Yeah, are you protecting yeah, anyone? Yeah, is there, is there, do you know any more about this than you said? I absolutely don't know anything. Of course, in 42 hours of calls, a good percentage of what Adnan and Sarah talk about is not actually crime-related. Sometimes they just talk. You know, one time... Um, Adnan told Sarah that occasionally he misdials when he's calling out of the prison and the person who answers the phone will actually accept the prison charges. And then they'll just chat for a while, just like a total stranger. 
And, and like, I can imagine it, it because yeah, I've, I've listened, listened to every single one of their phone calls and, 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 and I need to know all the tape possibilities and stuff. And I can tell you, listening to those calls, Idnan is a really good conversationalist. He can really hold forth for a while. You know, and he likes to joke around, and sometimes that's what he and Sarah are doing. They're just both joking around, or they might talk about TV shows or Idnan's life in prison or his family. And, and sometimes, as awkward as it is to admit this, and Sarah admits this, there's a bit of flirting going on. Like, there's this one time he discovered a gray hair in his beard. You know, there were, there were, there were reports over the months, but I, I had a confirmed sighting gray hair in my beard. I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing the first time I discovered a gray hair in my head. I can't really, man, I can't really accept your commiseration about gray hair, man, because... People, there's like different kinds of gray hair. There's like the gray hair that takes a person from like middle age to like grandpa and grandma. Right. Your gray hair, you have like the cool gray hair. Your gray hair goes from like 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 cute mother of two to like hot investigative journalist. You know what I mean? You have that kind of gray hair. Like my gray hair, if I get gray hair, right, it'll be like go from like regular dude to like aging terrorist. Like my mom, like together with the young guys, and they have like fake charges. If, if you think that Idnan is guilty, I, I can see how these conversations might disgust you. I do understand that. And both Sarah and I were a little bit cringy listening back to these. It's like, you know, she's laughing too much. It sounds like they're friends. It borders on the unseemly. But if I go back into the moment of that conversation, there are so many things happening there. I can forgive it. Because first of all, they're both just procrastinating, delaying the difficult discussion that will inevitably come during this phone call, because it always does come. And second, Adnan is talking cheerfully about getting old in prison, and that weighs on Adnan, the idea of dying in prison. And, and third, and I, frankly, this is the main thing that's going on, he's trying to charm Sarah to win her over. And I think that that's a totally fair thing for him to do. He has no power. He is entirely dependent, a ward of the state, you know? Anything that happens for him on the outside of that prison, someone else has to do it for him. And, and that includes us. If Sarah tells his story in a way that's favorable to him, maybe it'll, you know, help his case. So just on that level, of course, his charm is calculated. But I'd, I'd argue that all intentional charm is calculated. Sarah's charm is calculated no less than his. And she has tried to manipulate Adnan no less than he has tried to manipulate her. Remember, in, in these calls, Sarah does not know whether Adnan is guilty. She thinks it's really possible that he's innocent, but she doesn't know. And so every single thing she says is also calculated to do two things. One, get at the truth. And two, get him to call her back again at the appointed time. Because she is constantly aware that she could lose him, that he could just stop calling. And there's nothing she can do about that. And we need him for this story.
If you enjoyed those talks, you can catch Jad Abumrad and Julie Snyder on season two of Sydney Opera House podcast series, It's a Long Story, exploring the stories and influences behind their big ideas. Subscribe to It's a Long Story now on iTunes and Stitcher.